Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole, myself, and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery topics. But you are now tuned into our part two um, series featuring Dr. Oren Franco. We hope that you enjoyed part one. Uh, we talked a little bit about entrepreneurship, surgery survey, well, really, particularly entrepreneurship and residency, and you know, kind of just different ways and different outlooks on different things. But now we are going to dive a little bit deeper into private practice for those of you that are looking into that. Um, what are some of the different types of private practice models? What are some of the pros? What are some of the cons? Um, how can you make a million dollars a year in private practice? How do overhead expenses work? Um, tips on how to get a job if you are, you know, we have a lot of residents that listen to this. So if you're a third, fourth, fifth year or even a fellow, you know, how do you get a job or how do you how do you get your foot in the door somewhere? Okay, um, so without further ado, uh, please enjoy part two of our episode featuring Dr. Oren Franco. This podcast episode is sponsored by Surgery Survey. Surgery Survey is an automated marketing solution that assists health professionals in building their online reputation by capturing five-star client-slash-patient feedback. According to an article, 90% of clients viewed at least one online review before visiting a clinic and 94% agree that one unfavorable review convinced them to avoid visiting a clinic. Surgery Survey's well-structured system significantly improves their client, their clients' online reviews, allowing them to increase their practice and referrals. Please visit them at www.surgeysurvey.com. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. And kind of switching gears and, you know, because we have a lot of residents that listen that know what private practice is, but they may not know different, like there's, there are different levels to private practice and different things to consider. All you know is there's private practice and somebody sent them a contract or, you know, saying, hey, join our practice. They don't really know what to look for. So, um, Dr. Frank, if you could, I think it'd be a good kind of transition and kind of discuss uh, what are some different uh, different types of or different, you know, pra private practice models and kind of we can go into into the different, you know, things to look at. I know we're looking at overhead versus the size and um, if we can kind of go into that. Yeah, so uh, that's a big topic, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm going to put a plug for the California Orthopedic Association webinars where I really break this down. So you can you can just Google COA webinar or in Franco. And it's all free and you'll find it. But the first thing I'll tell you is you said there are residents who know what private practice is. Uh, to any resident out there who thinks you know what private practice is, you don't. Ah. And I'm just saying that as a former resident, as a former fellow, and someone who's been in private practice for five years, and I still am figuring out what <laughs> private practice is because yeah. it is always changing. There are practices that are, quote, private that are in partnerships with hospitals. There are private practices that are technically owned by private equity groups. You know, there are solo private practices with one owner. There are multi-specialty private practices with 18 partners. There are private practices that own real estate and multiple buildings. And then there are private practices that literally own nothing and they just see the patients who walk in their door. So um, even what private practices is so variable. 
And that's why it's very hard to answer questions about anything, about overhead or about salaries. I mean, I'll do my best, but it's also different because in some practices, when you talk about salary, you're talking about professional fees, which means how much money the surgeon gets paid for being a surgeon and operating on patients. But sometimes when you talk about salary or income, it refers to a partnership distribution, which means all of the ancillary income that you get from real estate and MRI and physical therapy and DME and ambulatory surgery centers and the professional fees from being a surgeon. So it can be very nuanced and very complicated. And that's why, well, I mean, that's why it's so hard to know. And it's, it's why residents aren't taught this, especially because most training programs are academic. And to be perfectly honest, most of your mentors in your residency programs, they don't even know because yeah. it really is that complicated. Um, so I don't blame them for not knowing. I do blame them for not knowing that they don't know. Mm. I, I don't think it's fair when you're attending say things about private practice that are just blatantly false. They tell you what private practice is quote like even though they've never been in private practice. And I'm not naming anyone specifically, and I'm not saying most people do it, but it's easy to get bad information. What are some of those things that you've heard that, that you've heard people say about private practice that just isn't necessarily true? You know, the common, the common things you hear, it's like, yeah, I would never want to do private practice because I don't want to deal with hiring and firing. I mean, God, hmm. do you think I actually hire and fire people? No, I mean, that's what your practice manager does. Yeah, ultimately, I might have a vote or I might be able to talk to them about it, but I don't deal with hiring and firing. I don't, I don't deal with payroll. You know, they say like, I don't want to deal with, or like the marketing. Like, you know, we were just talking about online reputation stuff. A lot of people are like, I don't want to deal with my website. I don't want to deal with marketing. That's fine. Hire someone to do it. Have your marketing manager do it. Have your practice manager doing it. You do what you want. So I think there's a lot of kind of misconceptions about how much work goes into being in private practice that's not being a doctor. But the yeah. flip side of it is that you get ownership. And I don't mean ownership like, you know, like you physically own it. I mean ownership as in you get to call the shots. Every single person who's ever been through any residency or fellowship knows what it's like to be an employee, knows what it's like to be told, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't sit here. You can't say that. You can't go on vacation that day. That doesn't exist in private practice. I mean, obviously, so long as you're working within the law, I mean, you do what you want. You get to practice how you'd like. You get to tell your staff how you want things done, how you want patient flow to run, which EMR to use. You make your own templates. You know, no one really tells you what to do. And that flexibility and freedom is worth its weight in gold and beyond. And ultimately, I think that's the most protective thing against burnout. You know, we all talk about burnout and burnout just means you're getting tired of your job. And there are two components to burnout. Ultimately, it's loss of autonomy and it's loss of, I'm already forgetting the other one. 
<laughs> oh, it's being overworked. It's loss oh, of yeah. autonomy and it's working too hard. And that's a recipe for disaster. But in private practice, you have all the autonomy in the world. So you're already protected. And because you have autonomy, you can choose how much you want to work. And, you know, I think financially you do a little better too. So you can work a little less and have more control. All right. So, that was long. Sorry. No, no, it was perfect. And it gave me a lot of uh, things to further deep dive deeper into. So just to kind of take a few steps back, I know you're talking about the different types of, uh, of private practice uh, models and, and just to break it down, cause I, I'm sure I will not name all of them. Um, but one of them, you know, things that you can have is you can be in a, in a practice where kind of where you are, where it's just a, a specialty practice, small, small group, just two people. You can have multi, um, uh, multi-disciplinary practices with, with, you know, with numerous different spe specialty practices. That's what I meant to say. Different specialty practices with, you know, 17 plus different members. You can have small groups of just a single, you know, a solo practice. You can have companies or practices that are owned by private equity companies. Uh, what, other, what other just model is there just, just so, you know, our listeners just know like, oh, this exists. We don't have to go necessarily deeply into the, uh, the pros and cons of each one, but what are some of the other models? Um, I think you hit up most of it. Ultimately, what it comes down to is the diversity of surgeon. So, um, and I'll hit up the pros and cons just a little bit to put it sure. into perspective. When you have the same type of surgeons, whether that's a single surgeon or let's say a small specialty group, let's say three spine guys or five hand guys, and gals, of course, all together. What you can benefit from is synergy with regards to utilization of resources and overhead. Meaning, you know, all of you can share the x-ray machine equally. All of you can share cast supplies equally. You know, in my hand group, we use a fluoroscan machine, so we don't actually have x-ray. So there's a lot of synergy and you can keep your overhead costs low. And when I say low, a lot of times we talk about kind of overhead percent, you might be able to keep it as low as like 30 to 35%. That's great. When you start introducing a diversity of specialties, suddenly, you know, you have a machine or a tool or a drug that only one surgeon uses and your overhead costs go up because it's not synergistic. You have a machine now that only one person uses, and it's basically sitting vacant the other four days of the week. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, the downside is that your overhead tends to be higher in those multi-specialty groups. The other thing is they're larger groups, so then you have more administrative costs. You have to have a marketing person, and a CEO, and a HR you know, type of person. What you get with those larger groups, however, is you get a larger footprint, you get more referrals, you have a practice where, you know, your foot guy's referring to the hand guy who's referring to the spine guy. And so that's nice. And you also get negotiating power. When you go to an insurance carrier, you can say, look, we want to get paid 10% more because we can see a lot more patients and do a lot more surgeries than that two-person hand group across the street. So, you know, there are pros and cons to both sides. And to be honest, 
I think if you really looked at it, it probably all evens out for the most part if it's true private practice. In my opinion, where the finances don't even out is when administration takes a giant bite of the pie. Whether that's an employee job, like a hospital employee job, or whether that's a really big multi-specialty private practice, we're talking, you know, 50 to 100 people, where it's basically like working for a hospital. When you have a giant layer of administration, that's money that vanishes and will never filter itself down to the surgeons. But if you have a surgeon-owned practice that's run efficiently, whether it's one person, five people, 15, uh, I think they're probably all equivalent in terms of overall finances. Uh, it just depends if they're run well and if it's your style. And you mentioned 30 to 35% being, is that, is that like a, an average number is, or is that a good number as far as the overhead? 30 to 35% is very good. If you're in a practice that says their overhead is, you know, under 35%, that's exceptional. Um, I would say most kind of moderate sized groups, multi-specialty groups probably aim for 45 to 55%. And that's pretty good. But I also know of practices, giant practices, sometimes mul multiple real estate, you know, locations. Uh, I've heard of overhead being 75, 80%. And that's terrible, to be quite honest. I mean, there is nothing more disheartening than knowing that 80% of the dollars you make does not come back to you. Yeah. And, and this is, when we're talking about this number, this is the percentage of the monthly income you make from like, you know, seeing patients surgeries, as well as some of those ancillaries that you're talking about, like physical therapy or MRI machines, et cetera. Is that, that's where that percentage it's, is coming from? It's different for every practice. When I calculated in my practice, it basically is professional fees minus overhead, kind of what you're alluding to initially there. Um, but there are some practices when they look at total overhead percent, it actually does include ancillaries. You know, they just look at the whole partnership package in that, you know, this is how much money we brought in as a giant massive group, ancillaries included, and this is how much money we had to pay all of our bills, including our staff, and this is what's left over. And that's how they calculate, you know, overhead percentage. So there, it's, it's yeah, dirty. Right. Yeah, it's and messy. And there are some practices where this overhead is fixed monthly versus it can be variable from month to month. Is that right? I don't know of a single practice where it's actually fixed Okay. because it's never actually fixed, right? You always have variable yeah. expenses. So any practice that's telling you that you have fixed overhead is, is not being truthful because it's never fixed, but that's okay in certain situations. So first of all, when you're an employee, it's often fixed. They just pick a number. Let's just say $35,000 a month. They say, look, whatever you make, we're going to take $35,000 a month. That's your overhead. And then anything extra kind of goes into your pot. Uh, other times they'll just make it a fixed percent. Or they say, we're going to take out 40% of whatever you make. That's our administrative costs. Everything above that goes into your pot. Um, I, I really don't know of any practices in orthopedics that are truly equitable in the sense that they are fixed overhead. 
that is much more common in non-surgical specialties, like let's say a pediatric group or an internal mm -hmm. medicine group, where they all work the same number of hours. Let's say they all work four days a week and they all basically share patients, you know, cause you know how it goes. Sometimes you call your pediatrician, yours is off that day. So your kid sees someone else, you know, they basically work as a single group unit. Those ones are far more of like a fixed overhead and even a fixed salary where they all just split it down the middle. And this is before taxes or is this yeah, it's before taxes? So, so say for example, you're at a place where I guess, you know, if you think about it, some contracts may say I was 50 grand a month, uh, that, that, let's say for 500,000 or so, uh, a year, uh, or let's mm -hmm. just say they, they're bringing in 50,000 a month, but your overhead is 35,000, uh, monthly. Uh -huh. And then you have to pay taxes, which I, I assume would be out of that 50,000 bracket, not necessarily out of that remaining 15,000 is, I don't know if that's right or not. No, um, no, because these are, this is business revenue and that 35,000 that's business expense. So okay. yeah, you never see that basically if to use the numbers you gave, which is a little low. Um, I think most orthopedic surgeons, even a, a young orthopedic surgeon could probably generate, let's say 70 to $80,000 or okay. more, you know, within a few months. So yeah, let's just say you're generating $75,000 a month after a few months and your overhead expenses is 35,000. So that's $40,000 less. So if that's the amount you made, you know, based on however your contract, you would get a W-2 for $40,000 of income and then your taxes would be taken out of that. Wow, okay. Okay, yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So you'd be making that after after all these, you know, after all the expenses and everything come down, come down to yeah. it. So that being said, how, I guess, how is it possible to make, you know, upwards of, of a million a year? If, for example, you're bringing in 70, 80,000 a month, your overhead is 35, that leaves you with what, 25, 30 a month, and then times that by 12 months, that's what, roughly 360, 400 grand, where, how, is it is it buying into practices or how can how can you hit that that target or that that, yeah. that number per se? So I first of all I think it's harder to make you know let's say over a million dollars we'll just use it as an arbitrary number as an employee, um, which is usually the first couple years of practice depending on you know the agreement um, because you're going to be on some type of salary hopefully with a bonus structure and from what I've seen. You know, a salary guarantee might be anywhere from two hundred or two hundred forty thousand dollars up to maybe $450,000. I'd say that's a pretty reasonable estimate for orthopedic surgeon. And then what they'll do is they'll say, okay, so your salary is $350,000 and we're going to charge you 50% overhead, which means if you make $700,000, we keep $350,000 you keep 350. Are you with me so far? Yep, with you so far. Okay, but then they'll say anything above those expenses will split to some degree. Maybe they'll say 50-50, maybe they'll say 70-30 or 60-40. So if you make 800 or if you collect 800, then you get your 350, they keep their 350, right? So that's 700. So that yep. extra $100,000 maybe you get to keep 
50% of it. Maybe you get to keep 30% of it. And that's just a bonus. Okay, so I think it's reasonable for, let's just use the numbers I gave you because I think they're pretty close, that in your first year, you might start off, you know, your first few months making like 30, 50, 60, 80. But by the end of the year, you could potentially be collecting $100,000 a year. So if you average around 80 and your overhead's 35 or 40, you know, you could probably make about $400,000, 450 just as an orthopedic surgeon employee. You with okay. me so far? With you so far. Okay. Once you're a partner, then there's no longer this overhead percent. Basically, it's just whatever the actual expense is, depending on the formula on how you divide it with your partners. These can be complicated formulas because some expenses are fixed, like rent and employees, and some expenses are variable, like DME and cash supplies. And every every practice has a way to split it. But basically, each month, you're going to have actual expenses. Sometimes it's going to be really high because you had to pay your malpractice insurance and maybe get a bill for $7,000. And some months it's going to be low because maybe a lot of employees took vacation and you just didn't have a lot of expenses that month. So, you know, every month is going to be different, but you could basically have your overhead still around $35,000 a month or $40,000 a month, but now you're getting busier. Maybe you're collecting $100,000, $120,000 a month, maybe more. So you could start taking home 60 or 70 or maybe $80,000 a month just from your professional fee. So now as a partner, maybe you're making 600 or 700. Again, I think that's pretty reasonable, pretty realistic. In addition, maybe you have the opportunity now to own physical therapy, MRI, surgery center, real estate. Now, granted, there's a buy-in for those things. You probably have to pay perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars to be an owner of those, but you know, you might get $5,000 a month from PT, $3,000 a month from the MRI, $20,000 a month from the surgery center. So, you know, that starts adding up. Now that's another $200,000, $300,000 a year from that. So now, you know, you got your $700 from professional fees, $300 from ancillary fees. And then you might also be taking call. In some practices, call is kind of included in the package because the practice has a contract with the hospital, but a lot of smaller practices calls totally on your own. So you might go to a hospital and they might pay a thousand bucks a night for you to take ortho call. So that's money that comes to you separately. That's typically as a 1099 as an independent contractor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you take five nights of call at a hospital per month on average, that's $5,000. Maybe you take call at two hospitals. Maybe you make $10,000 a month. So all of these things together really, really help. In fact, you could even be an owner of another surgery center. You don't have to only operate at one. So you might operate at two surgery centers. You might have ownership in two surgery centers. All of this is variable depending on the location, depending on the community. Sometimes there are communities that have surgery centers that make a lot of money. Sometimes there are surgery centers that don't make a lot of money. Sometimes there's call that pays well, and sometimes call doesn't pay well. There are so many variables. And again, it just kind of goes back to what I was saying. The only way to know is to call a practice, go have lunch with someone, 
and have this conversation that you and I are having right now and just say, spell it out for me. How am I going to make money in this practice? And they'll tell you. Yeah. And I think it's good to know even some of the options, like, you know, before, at least before looking at one of your webinars, I didn't even think of the fact that as far as call, you know, I mean, I guess you, in the back of your head, you know, but you don't like know it or realize it, that, you know, your call can just be contracted into your actual, you know, contract with that, with that group that you're joining versus going out and and finding it on your own. And then, you know, it may be a different rate, uh, you know, with the group versus signing on your own, but that's just another uh, part to it that I didn't necessarily think to ask about until I, like you said, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know what you don't know, like, you don't know what to ask because you just don't even, you haven't thought of it before of it being that, you know, that variable to the, you know, contract or the relationship or whatever it may be. Yeah. You're, yeah, that's that's all it is. There's only one way: is you just gotta ask. Yeah, and then, and then, what should we look at regarding bonuses? I, I remember in, in one of your uh, in one of your webinars, you you had made you had made a comment as far as salary versus you'd rather look at the different bonuses. Uh, you know, on, as far as a contract may be concerned. Um, what do you, I guess? What are your, kind of your thoughts as far as you know different bonuses and how yeah. and what you should know about it. Personally, I like incentives. I think incentives are best for everybody, meaning if you have some type of bonus structure, meaning you've you've got a guaranteed base salary plus some incentive for you to work harder and both of you benefit, meaning both the practice and the individual surgeon, I think that's a win-win because it encourages you to work harder and the harder you work, the more you make. And then there's less risk on the side of the practice because they only have to pay you more if you work more, right? So um, yeah. I really do like that. I mean, I, I don't know what the right answer is because every practice has a different model. Certainly, I think 50-50 is great um, because basically that's assuming a 50% overhead and you know the practice is making a little extra off for you, but they're not just totally taking advantage of you. So it is important to recognize that a practice takes a risk when they bring on a new partner and a practice has put in a lot of work, a lot of work to build a successful business. So, you know, sometimes I see fellows, you know, taking on these jobs saying, well, hey, I've already paid their overhead. I should keep 100% of what I make above it. And, you know, that's, that's not really right. You know, this practice, they've been around for, let's say, 30 years. They put a lot of work into building it. They deserve something for that effort. You know, the fact that they let you keep 50% of what you make above it is actually fair. So I, I'm just going to, I'll just say 50% recognizing that it can be all over the map, including zero. There are definitely jobs out there. They'll have a higher guarantee, but they'll have no bonus. They'll just say, your salary is 450. That's what we're going to pay you. Work as hard as you want. Um, but we do expect, obviously, certain minimums. And you won't, you're not going to get a penny more than that. And after two years, we'll let you be a partner. And then there are other practices that are going to basically say, it's eat what you kill. You know, We'll guarantee you some minimum, but we expect you to surpass that every single month. And basically, we'll just split 50-50 and work as hard as you can. So it, it, it's variable. Now, I've heard of people say, like, you know, they've joined this practice and, you know, they're guaranteed X amount of money. 
but for some reason after two years they end up actually owing money to the practice mm-hmm. do you, what in what situation would that happen and, and is that something that's common or like how do you how do you avoid that <laughs> i guess is the main thing for yeah. fellows going and signing contracts now you know we're getting about that time where uh you know fellowship applications are coming up soon and some people are about to start fellowships looking into jobs so how do you avoid getting into that situation you avoid that by having a realistic salary right uh and then also talking to them about what they think your estimated numbers are going to be and perhaps if there was another specialist you know in your specialty who either recently left looking at their numbers i don't personally know of anyone who is in that situation but i could imagine that situation especially with covid this year you know let's say you negotiated to say you want a base salary of $400,000, which I think is on the high end. And when you started, it turns out that maybe COVID decreased volume, or it may turn out that you're actually a slower surgeon than you think you are. And we have to be a little honest. There are fast surgeons and there are slow surgeons. And perhaps the guy before you, when you looked at his or her numbers, you know, they were cranking out 15 cases a day, you know, I'm a hand surgeon. So let's say, you know, you're doing trigger <laughs> fingers, you're doing 15 yeah. cases a day, but you know, you come out of fellowship and you know, you don't want to screw things up and you do just a radius fracture and it takes you two or three hours. And, you know, you scope an elbow and it takes you a couple hours and you just can't get your numbers up. So the way to avoid that is you don't guarantee yourself a high salary. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is flexible. If you start off practice and they're sending you, you know, checks for $40,000 a month paying you, and you realize that you are not meeting your numbers, I, I go back to them and say, look, I don't want to owe you money. Can we change my salary to two forty? dollars Pay me $20,000 a month. And uh, maybe when I get my numbers up, we can negotiate it higher. That would show a lot of maturity. Because I assure you, a practice does not want to be paying you money more than what you've brought in. Right. Yeah, no, that that makes sense. If I was on the other side of it and I was a practice, I, I could I could see where that could be problematic. And just a couple more questions here before we wrap up. Uh, one question I had is I'm, earlier in, in, you know, during this episode, you mentioned that you kind of have control over your schedule. You know, you kind of do uh, how you want to do it. Um, I have one just example scenario and the second one question I have is actually how you how you've organized your schedule but say for example you know you you want to do a private practice and and you want to you know you want to work three weeks out of the month but in those three weeks you're super busy you know you're cranking out a lot of cases you're seeing a lot of patients and then one week off the month you you, you get you want one week off the month off the month and that's how you run it you know, throughout the year, you work really hard for three weeks, crank it out, doing a bunch of numbers, then you have a week off where you're, where you're gone or do whatever it may be. Is that something feasible as far as private practice is concerned? Or is it just a general, you know, you, you work, you know, you have your, you work every, you know, you work four weeks and you have your, however, however many weeks of vacation that you have uh, in your contract is, is that's what it is? Like, is that something feasible to you? Absolutely. So, that's the joy of private practice. You make it happen however you want it to happen. But uh, I, what I will say is that 
you know, there's, there's the math, there's the numbers that work out, but then there's also just kind of the human component. I'm sure you've heard everyone says it's all about the three A's, right? And what's the first A, the most important is availability. I will tell you that if you work three weeks a month and then you're off a week, that's going to, that's going to result in some availability issues, you know, because patients don't always have complications on the three weeks that you're in town. And, you know, patients don't always uh, have injuries that they want to see you for on the three weeks that you're in town. So it, it's a little bit challenging if you get a reputation of a 75% surgeon, you know, someone who's really only there most of the time. Um, so that's one reason why I think a lot of surgeons don't make that schedule. Um, you know, you still have to pay your overhead. So it, that's the most expensive week of work is the one that you're not working. Yeah. The way I think of flexibility, I would call it kind of like active versus passive flexibility. Active flexibility is kind of what you're talking about. It's like those weeks that you schedule. And yeah, look, if you want to take off a week, if you want to take off two weeks, you just schedule that. I probably wouldn't recommend you do it every month, but you know, if you want to take a two week vacation over the summer and you want to take as many three day weekends as you want, I think that's very doable. That's active flexibility. And there's no limit to that. Passive flexibility, I guess would be like almost what we call like microaggressions in today's world. It's mm -hmm. like when you're done seeing patients at 3.30, because just for whatever reason, your patients all left, you know, they all showed up early and you're done at 3.30. You know, when you're employed, you just have to sit there. Like, you know, maybe depending on the culture of your organization, you can leave early, but a lot of organizations, you just kind of have to sit there because, you know, someone might call, there might be a walk-in, you know, you might, you might have to manage that. And it just doesn't, look, <clears throat> it just doesn't look good for you to leave early. Whereas when you're in private practice, I mean, when my patients are done, when I'm done at 3.30, I walk out the door at 3.30. Like there, there's no one stopping me. Or if I notice the following day that, like I have one patient at nine o'clock and then I don't have another patient until 10, 15. I just tell my front desk, can you call that 9 a.m. patient? Tell him to come at 10 o'clock. I'm going to sleep in for an extra hour. Mm. And so the, those types of like micro flexibility make such a difference. I mean, sometimes I'll notice I have an open lunch slot. I'll call a buddy and we'll just go out for lunch. And to have that kind of flexibility to just move around your schedule is really nice. Mm. And, and, and the difference between private practice and, and private demics, uh, well, that may be a whole, whole different conversation outside of the scope of this, but do you, do you work with residents in private practice or is that something that you would have, you know, is that something that could be an, an extra cost, you know, it just as, as far as working with residents and still being able to get that teaching aspect of it? You know, I do enjoy teaching and I, 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 in my heart, I do think I work with residents in the sense that you and I are having a conversation right now. And I hope that this podcast is going to go out and hundreds and maybe thousands of residents will hopefully listen to it and learn yeah. something from it. And to me, that fills that bucket, you know, that fills that wow, part of my okay. personality. 
And you know, when I give these webinars at the COA and I, I, I teach, to me, that's that aspect of it. That being said, I have had residents rotate with me through Stanford. Um, there are a couple of residents who have reached out and they have an elective and they've said, you know what, I kind of want to do my elective and learn about private practice. And I've had residents spend four to six weeks with me, you know, coming a couple of days a week during a rotation where they maybe also do research or something like that. So I have had direct resident ex exposure. We also have a PA, um, a PA school locally, and we've had PA students who rotate through. Honestly, that's not my favorite. Nothing against PAs. I'm married to a PA. Uh, I love <laughs> PAs, but you know, yeah. I enjoy teaching orthopedic residents because that's what I was, and I enjoy teaching future hand fellows. Um, so, you know, I do. I do feel like I get to teach residents and fellows, um, maybe just in a slightly different way. And one of the last things I wanted to touch on is that you you touched on it uh, when you're making an example a little bit earlier about private practice and buying into practice in about two years, it was a, it was a sample, an example you gave, say you had the 400,000 and after two years, you can buy into a practice. What is a, um, what is a, a good or like, you know, a reasonable time to be able to buy into a practice and then just some, I guess, overall reasonable numbers. I know it varies, you know, depending on what the practice is. I, I, I would assume it varies depending on what the practice is and what they're offering. Uh, but what are, I guess, some reasonable numbers just so, you know, there may be people out there that are getting an offer that think that it sounds great, but in reality, it's probably not the greatest. Very, very hard. It's very nuanced. Um, mm -hmm. And you have to know what you're buying, what you're actually getting. In terms of timelines, most that I see is between two and three years. Some practices have a, a firm two-year buy-in. You know, after two years of employee, you can buy in. Some of them only do it on January 1st. So for example, most fellows are gonna maybe start practice like in September or October. So it ends up being like two years and three or four months. Um, so I would say that's most common. The buy-in depends on what you're buying. I know some people who become a quote full partner and it's a $50,000 buy-in, which is like nothing in my mind to become a full partner. That seems yeah. like a great value depending on what you're getting. but Perhaps you're not really getting anything other than the right to keep what you make. Some practices, I know practices that have an $800,000 buy-in, but for $800,000, you're buying one-fifteenth of a building, one-fifteenth of a surgery center, one-fifteenth of an MRI, of a PT, of, you know, of an actual practice entity. So, you know, that has a lot of value because that $800,000 might earn you distributions of $300,000 per year in ancillary income. It also might earn you 1 15th of a private equity buyout because that's kind of what's happening with a lot of these large groups. So you can't say one is right or wrong. They're just so different. But generally speaking, I don't know anyone who regrets becoming a partner in their practice. If you're in a practice where everyone's a partner and they're offering you a partnership buy-in and it's basically the same formula that everyone else used to buy in, you probably just go along with it, to be quite honest. Save yourself a lot of heartache um, because if it worked for everyone else, it'll probably work for you. And is this, is this, uh, is this like, 
straight cash? Like, you know, you're getting it today or is this taken out of like checks over the, over a course of a couple months? How does that work? Like very you know, 600,000. Very yeah. reasonable question. And even that you think would be a straight answer, but it's not. So uh, some practices basically will just deduct it from your distributions going forward. So like I gave an example of an $800,000 buy-in that might earn you $300,000 per year. What they might say is for the first year, you actually only get 20% of your distributions. We're going to keep 80% towards your buy-in. And then the next year, it might be 60-40. And then the next year might be 40-60. And then the next year might be 20-80. And then by your fifth year, you get the full distribution, something like that. Um, yeah. My practice is a, some practices will just straight up give you a loan where, you know, like they basically pay your buy-in for you and then you just have to pay them back essentially as loan payments. Some people might do a private loan. You just go to a bank um, or you, you might just have a family member you borrow the money from. There's also a lot of variability on whether that's post-tax or pre-tax money. Um, the advice I got from an attorney and my accountant is that when you're buying a piece of a business, that is an asset and that's post-tax money and the IRS wants their fair share. So I paid for my buy-in with post-tax money. The flip side of that is when I sell my share, um, you know, there's basically an investment I've already made. So I don't have to pay taxes on the return. Uh, but some practices, like I gave the example of paying your buy-in with the distributions, that's pre-tax money, I think, unless you get taxed for it later in the K-1, which is the tax form you get for a partnership. Um, but I don't know. That's not my situation. But I know that there is a little bit of variability there as well. Yeah. And, and, and one last question that I have is um, I know you're, you're very open with your numbers, but in, you don't have to go into direct detail if you don't want to. But overall, how is uh, where does most of your income come from? Are you getting most of it from are you getting like 30 percent of it from just call or are you get is it most of it just coming from seeing a lot of patients and doing a lot of surgery? Uh, I guess like, you know, in your experience, how you have it set up. Um, it changes because I'm taking a little less call than I used to. And my call contract changed. I think probably COVID related. The hospital really cut down what I was making on call. But I would say um, as a partner, about 50% of my income comes from the practice, the professional fees. Um, so maybe even 60% of my income comes from professional fees. So, you know, definitely the biggest bang for your buck, see more patients, do more surgeries, you make more money, no question. Um, and the other 40% is a combination of ASC, surgery center, ownership, um, occupational therapy, hand therapy, which is really not that much, and hospital call. And then maybe a little bit of like consulting, but that's really minuscule. Okay. And, and what is ASC, if you don't mind me asking? Ambulatory Surgery Center. Oh, when oh someone okay. talks about yeah. patient surgery center, that's an ASC, yeah. And yeah, so often, sure. just and this will just be real quick because a lot of people don't understand. So the way, the reason you can make money as an owner of a surgery center is that when a patient has a surgery, there are three bills. There's the payment to the surgeon. That's the professional fee. That's what you get for doing a distal radius fracture. There's the payment to the anesthesiologist. That's what they get for putting the patient to sleep. And there is a facility fee. That's what the surgery center gets for basically supporting the surgery. And that includes the implant cost. 
So for a distal radius fracture, a facility fee might be, let's say, $3,500. Okay, let's just say something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess to round it out, the surgeon fee might be $1,500. The anesthesia fee might be $500. And the facility fee might be $3,500. So the patient insurance is paying $5,500. And of that $3,500 that's going to the facility, let's say $1,000 pays for the plate and screws. That's $2,500 now left over. And then, you know, maybe $500 is like, the sterile pack, the processing, the nurse, you know, and the tech that was in the room, the propofol, all the supplies. So the surgery might make a profit of about $2,000 on that procedure. And so as an owner of the surgery center, you then get to share in the profits. So, you know, if a surgery center does 100 cases a month and they make an extra $100,000 a month, and there are 20 surgeons who are co-owners of the surgery center, you might get a $5,000 distribution. Really rough numbers, super simplified, but just in case that's not clear, there are people who don't really understand how that works. That's how that works. No, I appreciate you for breaking that down. That, uh, I hope for everybody listening, definitely clears a lot of things up as far as uh, distribution and breaking things down and how I guess being it could be advantageous depending on you know what the surgery center is, uh, where they are, et cetera, to be a part owner of the surgery center. But um, right. I feel like that in its own can be its own <laughs> its own podcast. Okay. Um, so you know I think that's that's pretty good. Well, um, Dr. Franco, anything else? I think there's been a great talk, great overview, great insight into the life of private practice, some of the different types of models. Um, some of the things to look for, we even talked about kind of, you know, at the beginning entrepreneurship and, you know, starting, you know, businesses and and just kind of going after it. But are, are there any uh, parting words that you definitely want, you know, future uh, residents, uh, you know, early attendings, fellows to know about private practice and, you know, kind of just this general topic? You know, oh, gosh, that's a hard one. I guess I would say, there's no one right answer. And if you ask 10 different surgeons, you'll probably get about 11 different answers to any particular question, especially in the realm of practices and finances and how to find a job. So not to sound like a, a crotchety community private practice guy, I'm not anti-academics. <laughs> I, I really thought I would go into academics, but I guess what I would say is, you know, don't believe everything you're told. And I have the most utmost respect for all of my mentors. And I appreciate them so greatly for everything they've told me and taught me, but they don't always have all the answers. So I would just say, seek it out. You asked me about, you know, do I get to teach residents? And I told you this right now, this is how I teach residents. So although you maybe can't join me in the OR and learn how I can do a distal radius fracture, I would be more than happy for you to reach out to me and ask me questions about finding a job. So any of your listeners, you know, I'm always open and um, you can Google me and find my email address pretty easily. Uh, maybe, I don't know if you have podcast notes, I'd be happy to put it up there. Sure. And so if you, if you have questions or looking for the resources, I'm always happy to help. 
Well, Dr. Franco, again, I think this was a great podcast, um, great episode. I definitely appreciate you for taking the time out and coming on to the, you know, the podcast and, and, uh, and blessing us with some, some great knowledge. Uh, at the end of our interviews, we always ask our you know, guests if they have any social media. I know you have a Twitter handle. I don't know if you know the name of it, but if you, if you have anything that you would like uh, you know, our followers to follow you what at or reach your Twitter anything. handle? <laughs> no, it's, it's at Oren Franco MD. And there my name is a little funny. It's O-R-R-I-N-F-R-A-N-K-O-M-D. That's my Twitter handle. Um, but... I don't know. I should probably do a better job with all that. <laughs> well, Dr. Franco, it's been a great um, episode. For those of you that are listening, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I hope you um, go and leave a review and, and tell us how much you liked it. Um, of course, hit that subscribe button. We will uh, we will be back again next week with another episode of the Nail the Ortho podcast. Thank you all for listening to that episode of the Nether Ortho podcast with Dr. Oren Franco. We hope you all enjoyed it. Again, it's a little bit off brand, you know, from our typical like orthopedic surgery topics. But again, this is just something that, you know, sometimes you don't really learn while you're in residency. You have so many things to learn. So we hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, without further ado, we hope you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We hope you follow us at Nether Ortho at Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. If you have any questions, feel free to email us at, at nailerortho at gmail.com. And until next time.